This podcast was recorded at Redemption Alhambra Village in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Redemption Alhambra Village, visit redemptionaz.com. Church, we're so blessed that uh, we get to be a part of each other's lives as a family, and we're blessed that we get to be a part of Redemption Church as a whole. Today we're starting a new series and a a couple of things that we want to make sure that we uh, make you aware of before we start today is a couple of announcements. If you could write them down, I'm not going to be able to spend a lot of time because I got a lot to cover today and I ran a little bit long, a lot long in the first service. Um, One would be this, uh, on on September 7th, I'm sorry, uh, we have our class which is pastoring our community. Uh, as pastors, we take the first Wednesday and we just address things that we need to see, uh, we want to address as a church. We do that a couple ways. You can come here on Wednesday the 7th. We have a live kind of uh, talk and Q&A. And then if you can't, because we are not able to provide childcare, that we do uh, stream it for those who need to stay home. You can also interact online. Um, so that I would encourage you to go to. Number two is this. As everybody's coming back from the summer and kind of taking breaks and checking out and the whole, the whole nine, um, vacations and all of that, um, we just need to rally our volunteers again. And so if you are volunteering anywhere, we're asking that you would come to a breakfast on September 17th at 9 a.m. Or if you're even thinking, man, I'd love to help and serve. I'm not sure where. Uh, it would be great if you would come. We're going to provide breakfast. There'll be children's activities. But we just need everybody to know in this church that this, this church is ran on volunteers from elders all the way down. It's ran because people care enough to serve and give of themselves. And we need more. It may look like we've got all the pieces together, but the reality is there's so many gaps and holes and ways that you could serve. And it would be amazing if you could come that day, September 17th. We're going to keep talking about it. You'll see it on online, but just mark those dates. Another thing, as we're going into this series on the Sermon of the Mount, all of the congregations, Redemption, are uh, 10 congregations. We're starting today, which we'll talk about why that's so exciting. But I would love for you to not just interact with it today, but throughout the week in your own life and in your RCs. And so we've made these in all the congregations for us to be able to interact. You'll see that every sermon is broken down, which what we'll be talking about. There's discussion questions and personal application and all those kinds of things. And so I'm going to do this because I trust you guys. These are $3. You can buy one for your family, for yourself. Just so you can have one before the service, if you promise me that you will give the $3 either outside at the table or drop it in the offering, just make sure to mark it in the envelope. Or if you add it to your tithe and offering at the end of the service, um, then we'll get one in your hands right now. So if you want one of these, we've got ushers right now, just raise your hand. You just got to promise me you'll give $3 if you don't. I'm going to hunt you down. No, just kidding. Uh, just, and if you want to buy one next week or whatever, we'll have them available. Or if you want to get one today and promise you'll pay next week, just raise your hand. And, uh, and, and these are $3. And make sure to get one in your hands right now. And if you don't want one of these and you just want a Bible, let one of the ushers know they'll get a Bible in your hand. So these, I, I'm praying that you'll use and you'll use for personal study, you'll use them for uh, your RCs, you'll use them in your, as, you're, as we're preaching to take notes. Get one of these in your hands, they're only $3 and they're really, really helpful. My son came up to me after service, I liked this, and he said, Dad, I, I got one of those. And I said, oh good, he goes, you need to pay for it. All right. 
He didn't even ask me. He just said, I got one, took notes in it. I said, well, you better use it, son. I'm going to check it every week. He goes, all right. Um, one of the things that, uh, that I'm hoping you will see in this, and, and I, I want to make this extremely clear. This is not by strategy. I wish we were this smart. But based upon the very work of the Holy Spirit that we would, at the beginning of this year, choose to come into the Sermon on the Mount. Um, one thing that's really amazing in this is the timing in which this sermon finds itself. There's a young man up here who wants a, one. Make sure to get him one, Abel. Uh, oh, he wants a Bible. Okay, Bible's good too. Uh, I just want to make sure. I want to make sure. Those are free, yeah. Um, is as we are going into this, I want us to look at the, the surroundings in which we find ourselves in so that we can see why the Spirit would be drawing us to this text. So I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, or if you got one of these, it's the first page there, it has the text we'll be studying today, Matthew chapter 5 verses 1 through 12. I want you to turn there, and while you're turning there, here's what I want you to think about. You would have to literally be blind or living in a hole if you did not see the craziness that is happening in the world around us. Um... I really don't know how to describe it. I've never seen anything like this in my life. With the way politics are going in our country right now, and the polarizing sides in which we find ourselves, and you cannot go on any sort of media without being bombarded with crazy statements, accusations, and absolute foolishness we live in such a different time than we've ever lived before and what can end up happening for the body of Christ is because this is our reality we can start making the scriptures like a fairy tale to us we can read something like this and go that's just not realistic and will never happen and when you make scriptures a fairy tale, and when you make the Word of God kind of unrealistic, what ends up happening is you allow yourself to check out of what the Word of God teaches and not apply it into your own life. Here's our problem as the church. And when I say the church, I'm not just talking about us. This is... When I say church, I'm saying big C because you can see it all around us. Christians for so long in this country have been the people in power and with all the popularity. We have been the in crowd for so long that we have not been in conflict with culture for so long We've been in this congruent, in sync kind of way with culture and everything around us. And those in power have, 
have taken the word Christianity for a long time and said, here's what, listen, we're a Christian nation. We have Christian morals. We're a part of the moral majority. And we've been the ones in our own minds going, listen, a, 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 a candidate can't win without our vote, without the Christian vote. And we've believed that for so long. We've grown used to being part of the moral majority that what ends up happening in these times is as the climate of our world is changing, Christians are struggling to find their place because we don't know how to live in contrast to the world around us. We don't know how to live as a contrast community because we've been popular for so long and we've been the in crowd for so long and Christians have been respected, and these are all quotes because I'm saying I'm sarcastic, respected in our own minds for so long that we don't know what it's like to not be respected, to not be making decisions and for being countercultural to everything that we're seeing in the world around us. So we're struggling. We're struggling because we've always been to the right. We've always been the moral majority. We've always been making decisions. Now, from both sides of the table, if you really look at all the politics and the independent, everything around us, there is a hard, it is really hard for those who are a part of the kingdom of God to find any home in any party anywhere. Why? Well, I think, one, as uncomfortable as it is, this is better for us. Here's what I mean by that. Christians, or the people of God, don't do very well when they have all the power and all the popularity. Because what ends up happening is those who call themselves Christians end up being the ones who start using the power and in the name of Jesus they start conquering lands and killing people and running people out. They start taking slaves. They start doing these kinds of things in the name of Jesus. They start running countries, making laws. They start doing all these things to bring order into the world. They start doing all of these things and calling it Christianity. And the problem is people who look at that think, well, that's what Christianity is. And it's not. The people of God from the very beginning in Scripture, from the very, from the very when, when He established His people as the people of God, the people of Israel, when He started to they were the ones on the margins, the ones who were marginalized, the ones who were the weak and the poor and the vulnerable. They were the ones who were a contrast community in a world that was living completely different. The people of God are placed in the world to show what the kingdom of God looks like in contrast to what they see in the world around us. And here's where we're struggling. If we're honest, people look now at the church and go, look, y'all are just crazy because you talk a big game, but I don't even know if you read your own scriptures. Like they know more than we do. Like they say, hey, look, uh, 
Look at all these things that Jesus teaches and the Word of God says, and you're not even living those things out. And the reality is there's no embodiment of what the gospel preaches. There's no living these things out. There's this church that's trying to be the cool church, the popular church, and there's no living these things out. And in this time, the church has become so disconnected that it's become irrelevant to the world around it. They could say that is about us, but I can also say, if we were honest, we would have that same assessment. What makes us different? And this is where Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, and the teachings that we're going to see in which Jesus taught his disciples here is going to rub against us big time. I don't think any of us are going to escape today without being confronted. I don't think it's going to be impossible. And here's the reason why. And you'll hear what the real, uh, the real thing is. I'm going to skip to this slide because I want to read this. But this is an anti-beatitudes, if you will, because I'm going to read the real one in a minute. But I want you to hear what we would think if we wrote our own beatitudes. Here's what we would say. Jesus opened his mouth and began to affirm them, and you'll see why that's funny, saying, blessed are those who proudly live their own way, for they will be better than everyone else. Blessed are those who live comfortably and pain-free with an easy life, for they will be free from troubles. Blessed are those who are powerful and use it, for they will be able to serve and protect their own interests. Blessed are those who are full and satisfied and privileged, for they will enjoy the status quo. Blessed are those who are always getting the last laugh and the final word, for they will get just the justice they desire. Blessed are those who pursue anything their hearts desire, for they will experience freedom of expression. Blessed are the drama queens and the crisis causers, for they will get a lot of attention on social media. And blessed are those who sync with culture and sprinkle a little, a little bit of Jesus on it because they will build their own kingdom. Blessed are those who receive the praises of man for they will get the praise they desire. Let's stand as we read Jesus' word. And remember as we're reading this, this is not our words, this is the words of our Lord Jesus. This is his word. Let's see it as such. Seeing the crowds, he went up to the mountain and sat down to his disciples, came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be com comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are perse persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who re others revile you and persecute you and, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Here's what I want you to, to notice here. This slide, 
I want you to write it down if you have the notebook. Write it in there because I want you to see this. We're going to talk about this a lot. But this is the politic for the kingdom and it is embodied by the king. Now, Jesus would not call his people into something that he did not first embody and empower. Embody and empower. So if you're going to look at these things, you first must see that the, the king embodies these perfectly. Jesus is not calling us and empowering us to do something opposite in which he would perfectly do himself. This is the politic of the kingdom. But I want you to notice something that's different about this kingdom that's different than the kingdom we're in and the kingdom of this time. Look at chapter 4, the verses right before he starts. He says, And throughout all of Galilee, teaching their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel to the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people so that his fame spread throughout Syria. And they brought him all sick and afflicted various diseases and pains and these oppressed by demons and epileptics and paralytics and he healed them and great crowds followed him to Galilee and Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and and there to to the Jordan look at that Jesus is popular I mean super popular he is his fame is spreading and people are following him all throughout the land because of the great works that he is doing. He is embodying this kingdom. But what does he do in chapter 5? Instead of going back to the crowd and trying to give a lesson, instead of going to the crowd and healing more people, and instead of posting another clip or putting another thing to increase his fame, what does he do in chapter 5? He pulls away up to the mountain and alone with his disciples. He gets away from the crowd. Uh, The kingdom of God is not building its success on its popularity. How do you determine whether a church is successful? Most of you would say, well, how big is it? How many people go and how much money do they bring in? Why? Because we build our terms of success based upon how many people follow it and how much fame it has and how much it is. We don't build it upon the things that the kingdom of God does. Why? Because in our eyes, something that's bigger is always better and something that's more famous is always always better because we're looking for the things that that is. And Jesus was not wrapped up in that fame and that popularity. I I think of it in in this light. My my daughter really wants to be famous and, and, and I don't know where this comes from except for she watches YouTube clips all the time. She's five years old and I get on my wife's phone and all of a sudden I see videos of my five-year-old daughter making like a fake YouTube clip, right? And she said, hi guys, uh, this is Aria. Uh, just wanted to do an e- uh, eating challenge and all this. Why? Why? We can't even eat something without wanting people to affirm us, right? We are so convinced that our life means nothing unless people follow everything we do. 
We have so wrapped up into how many likes and shares and how much we have and where our following is that the reality is we build our whole identity based upon our popularity. And what does Jesus do here? He pulls away from the crowd and he sits down with 12, his disciples, because he wants them to hear something he can't speak to the masses. You realize that there's certain messages for the masses and then there's others for the disciples. We're always going to struggle if we're trying to make the gospel popular. Why? Because <laughs> it's not. And we do all that we can. Let's add lights, let's add fog machines. Let's have everybody have tattoos, you know. Let's all be cool, and then if a cool person says it, then everybody will want to do it. We do all we can to make the gospel cool. And it's not. Why are we struggling with this reality? Well, he pulls away from his disciples, and he goes, listen, here's... I know I'm famous right now. I know we could get swept away with all the fame and popularity, but I want you to hear something. There's something important that you need to see when you see Jesus pulling away from the crowds up into the mountains. This is an image, if you will, or a truer and better version of what Moses did. Moses pulls away into the mountains, what? To get a law from God to bring back to his people. But instead of Jesus going up into the mountains by himself, he takes his disciples. Why is this important? Because he brings his disciples up because this law is not going to be like the law of Moses. It's truer, it's better, and it's not going to be written on tablets. It's going to be written on the hearts of his disciples. This law was brought up onto the mountain to give to his disciples who were not going to come down as stone laws, a checklist, but were going to embody. He was teaching them to observe all that he was commanding them. And he goes into this with them to say, look, this is what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God. And he starts to teach them what the blessed life, the happy life, the fulfilled life is like. Listen, if we're honest, everybody around us and ourselves, we're looking to be happy. The pursuit of happiness. We want to be fulfilled and we want to be blessed. But if we were honest, our definition of what's happy and blessed and fulfilled sounds nothing like what Jesus is saying. This is where we have to believe that what Jesus does masterfully in this is show us what it means to be truly blessed, truly happy, and truly fulfilled. I love that his first thing is showing that what Jesus, is, Jesus values in his kingdom, the king, and here's what he values. Here's what he elevates. Blessed are the poor in spirit. There is no country in the world that values their poor over the rich. <laughs> no country in the world looks at the poor and goes, we should try to be poor. <laughs> but the kingdom of God does. Can you start to feel the rub? This has nothing to do with someone's financial status, whether they have money or don't. This has everything to do with a state of 
the heart. So this is not just low self-esteem and introversion and bad self-image, or this is not just I have not very much money. This is something that has to do with what are the people of God in the kingdom of God like? And let me make this clear. This is not for the super Christian because, because what has happened amongst the church is they've adopted a Catholic doctrine which believes there's laity and upper echelon of Christianity. But the people of God need to understand this is baseline. Everyone in the kingdom of God to be a part of the kingdom of God has this. This is not for super Christians. So if you're like, well, that's not me then it's not like, that's baseline. That is all of those who are the people of God have this. This is not an option. This is a part of those who are the people of God. So when I use this word poor in spirit, our wrestle is give me a definition. Because if you could give me a definition, I could write it in the book and I'll just check it off my list. But what scripture does more often than a definition is give a person who embodies it perfectly embodied in Jesus but remember the story he told of the prodigal son who took his passions and all of his father's possessions and he squandered them um, on on all of his desires and and everything that he wanted and he realized at the end of all of that that none of his passions and desires would lead him to a place of life and what he realized was that he was empty and had nothing and he was emptied of his pride and self-reliance and what he realized is it's better to depend on my father and to be in his house than it is for me to be off on my own. And he came empty-handed to his father. It's a lot like what we sang in that song, Rock of Ages, just before I came up here. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I, I, I to thy fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. This poor in spirit means I am completely and utterly dependent upon my father. Now, some of you, this is a, a reality, and others, it's not. And I know this is going to be hard for us to understand because everything we're taught and learned. I'm not in any way trying to elevate a financial status, but I'm using it namely as an illustration like Jesus does here. Some of us in this room knows what it's like to live paycheck to paycheck. We know that if I don't get paid this Friday, little, little girl ain't eating, right? Little boy ain't eating. I'm going to be struggling. Gas, I ain't going to get to work. We know what it's like to have to depend completely on that paycheck. And I'm not saying it's all because you don't make enough. It may be because you spend like crazy. I don't, I'm just saying you know what it's like. But that's not what people strive for. Most people go, I just want to make enough money to not have to worry. That's, that's what they want. Jesus, instead of elevating the rich who make enough money who don't have to worry, elevate the poor in spirit and basically say, those who are in the kingdom of God live completely dependent upon the riches of Jesus, of God. It's, it's, it's a lot like what uh, the children of Israel were commanded to do by God that they were supposed to take only enough bread 
for that day. And if they took too much, it was going to rot overnight. Why? So that they would have to depend on the Father for the next day. It's a lot like what Jesus tells his disciples to pray when he says, give us this day our daily bread. And if you were honest, y'all don't want to live that way. You don't want to live daily dependent and poor upon the spirit, upon, you don't want to have a poor spirit where every day you're totally dependent upon him. And if he doesn't provide the very riches necessary for you to go on, this is what he's saying. Blessed are the happy life in the kingdom of God are those who are poor. They're the ones who will receive the kingdom of heaven. Flowing out of that, and I'm going to try to move quick because I went long. I'm already, I'm already, you all, I can't do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who mourn. Here's what happens. When you're poor in spirit, it flows into this next thing. These are all attached. This is not a checklist. This is a flow. Jesus masterfully put this together. He goes, blessed are the poor in spirit because what will happen is they'll be the ones who are going to mourn. Now, this is not just to comfort us when somebody close to us dies. This is a state of heart in which someone is broken for the very sins they've committed against God. Another problem that we have within our churches and in in our own lives is that we get so used to just trolling on the grace of God so much that we don't know what it's like to mourn over the very brokenness that has offended the God who is holy. We spend more time excusing our sin than mourning and being broken over our pride and arrogance and sin and crying out for God. But here's the thing. When you live in that place where you're mourning and broken over the very state and brokenness of your heart, the poverty of your spirit, the depression of uh, the, the, the sin that's within you, you're the ones who will be comforted. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the mor- those who mourn. And what it is is blessed are the meek. This is going to be the hardest one for me to give you a definition of. And I won't even be able to spend a bunch of time on it. But instead of longing for a definition, here's what you need to understand. What does it look like for the church to be gentle and humble and considerate and meek? Ferguson says it this way. There's no more beautiful quality than a Christian's meekness. It enhances manliness, it endorns femininity, and it's a jewel that's polished by grace, but it's far too rare. I know, we want to, Pastor, just tell me what I need to do to be meek. Oh, you're going to have to wrestle with, you're going to have to look at people like Moses, who scripture calls meek and humble. You're going to have to look at Jesus, who came, who is God, who humbled himself, who identified as throughout scripture as meek and humble. You're going to have to look at the embodiment of this in our King Jesus, and you're going to have to wrestle with and ask God, what does it look like for me to be Meek. Well, I'll tell you this. You can't be meek without being poor in spirit and without mourning over the brokenness. Meekness is going to come from that. And what is that tied to? Those who are poor and mourn and meek have this state of heart where they hunger and thirst for righteousness. This is tied to where is the very basic needs in which we can find 
our righteousness, our right standing before God and our right standing before each other. Well, here's what this is tied to. Hungering and thirsting is tied to the reality of my source cannot be found in myself. I have to get it outside of myself. I have to eat food in order to get that craving satisfied. Food can only fill the very hunger that I have. Water can only fill the very thirsting that I have. And I need to hunger and thirst for what? Righteousness. That means the self-righteous cannot be a part of the kingdom of God. Those who are the best and the most moral and the ones who feel like they've got it all together and have reached up to their checklist and got everything down, they're the ones who are not going to be a part. It's the ones who see that it is only by the righteousness that comes from God, relationship with God, I hunger for Him, seeing that it's only found in the work of Jesus and hungering for Him and thirsting for Him to be our Savior and King. You want to know what a big marker of the people of God is, they are a dependent people. I I remember the church getting really offended by one of uh, the governors, I can't even remember, who said, the reason I don't like Christian people is because it's like they just need a crutch, right? I would say he was being nice. I don't need this as a crutch. I need this as life, heartbeat, to even do anything, right? I am fully and completely dependent upon God and his mercy and his love and his grace and his, and his, and his work. I need him. This idea of being totally dependent is not something we're taught in our kingdom. But just so that it doesn't turn in on ourselves, because Luther says we have a tendency to turn everything on ourselves. We love self-centeredness. Jesus doesn't just stop there. He starts with this complete dependence upon him that leads to mercy. We show mercy to others. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. We have a tendency to go, okay, God, I'll depend on you. Thank you for all that you supply for me and give to me. And don't realize that when we have received with such hunger and thirsting and we have been given all that we have been given, the reason why we can give this mercy away is because we're not trying to save it for another day. That supply is endless. This makes us in a place where as the people of God, we are showing mercy. God's work for us is not meant to increase us, but to decrease us and to allow for us to experience and to give away the very things that we are and have experienced, this mercy that's been given to us. What you have received must be given to others. Blessed to the pure at heart. This is not a moral state. This is not just about us doing the right things. It's not based upon our actions. This has everything to do with not, uh, us not letting anything stand in the way of our worship to Jesus and, 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 and a complete commitment to him. Blessed to the pure in heart. Blessed to the peacemakers. This one will cause us to wrestle. And, and the reason why this will cause us to wrestle is because there's nothing in us that, 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 that tells us we need to enter into other people brokenness and strive to bring peace 
what we look at is everybody struggling and everybody broken. That ain't my struggle. That ain't my issue. Oh, we might throw out an opinion. We're all allowed to have opinions. Let me throw out my soul, but I ain't going to get into it. I'm not going to enter into the brokenness. Peacemaking is this reality that we have to wrestle with, that the people of God are called, like Jesus, to enter into the brokenness of the world and to strive to bring peace, peace in their community, in their family, in their marriage. I know you all in your marriage are waiting for the, the other person to bring peace. I'll apologize once they do. Who's going to be the first to bring peace? Who's going to be the first to humble them? What about family? That everything's out. Who's going to bring peace? Who's going to enter into the brokenness? Who's not going to give up because they just can't? I can't go in and fix it and make everything perfect and clean. It means I got to enter into it and strive and struggle and be a part of it. What about the community? What about the church? What about the community that we see in the world around us? What about the nation? What about the things that are happening? Are we, is, our, is our desire to be right or to bring peace? This is not just peace between one another. This is peace between man and God. This is peace. And the wrestle of the people of God is we're called to be peacemakers. This promise we won't like. But he mentions it twice just so we don't miss it. <laughs> we like to skip over things, but he doesn't want us to skip this. He mentions one word twice. He says, you're going to be persecuted. And just in case you didn't hear it, you will be persecuted. Two verses, two times, he mentions two types of persecution. The reality is the people of God who are living in this way, totally dependent upon him, pure of heart, merciful, peacemaking, they're going to be persecuted. And what we think of when we think of persecution is a lot of people go, well, they're just people who are going to say things bad about us, and who cares about that? I mean, everybody's going to have their opinion. People just say, no, what we need to hear about persecution is most of the persecution is not going to come just from the culture, although it will come from there. It's going to come from the self-righteous who have been in power and been using religion to make their own rules, and they're going to hate it when you come with a different ethic. You're going to get it from every angle. You're going to have people persecuting from every side, people talking about you, reviling against you, and all because these types of things, the very nature of the gospel puts us in contrast to the cultures of the world and the self-righteousness of, the, of, the, of religion. The question is, and I'm not saying I, I want us all to be persecuted, but hear me on this. If persecution is inevitable, why isn't the church experiencing persecution in America? Because who cares about how cool our services are? Who cares about how theologically accurate we are, right? Who cares about these things when the reality is those things are not what stand us in contrast. It is the people of God embodying and living as we're going to see next week. Wayne talks about salt and light in the world. But what is that salt and light of the world? It's the people who are living out the very commands of Jesus in the world around them. Um, 
Why is this important? Because everything in us is going to ask this question as, as we listen to something like this. Tell me how to do this. Tell me how to do this. Pastor, just tell me what I need to do. If I need to write it down and I'll work really hard, tell me how to do this. But you have to notice that most of the stuff that's mentioned here up until this point, because five through seven, it's going to get really practical. You're going to start things that you're not going to like, but it's going to start right here. He starts mentioning very heart-level things, things that he himself embodies, things that we, and, and he, he doesn't just say, do this. He's showing us what the state of our hearts and lives should be. And we start wrestling with the implications of it. But none of this stuff that he's asking us to do are things that are disembodied. They're not just checklists. They're embodied perfectly by the person of Jesus Christ, the one who's speaking it, the king. If you were to take all of these, just example, and go through and put Jesus in there, all of it would be true. Jesus is poor in spirit, and his is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus mourned. He was comforted. Jesus is meek, and he is going to inherit the earth. That what we see in all of this is so that we will not approach it and go, this is just unrealistic. Is that this forces us, it forces us to run to our King, to run to Jesus, and to what? Depend on Him. To be poor in spirit. To mourn over your sin and brokenness to hunger and thirst for his righteousness when you see this it forces you into the place in which he calls us into dependence upon him and his spirit i am not laying this out for you to go try and go figure this out what i'm showing us is that we need jesus we need him as king and we need his spirit but with that in mind, as the band comes, there's another danger that can happen to the church. Is that we can start looking at things like this and say things like, well, Jesus did all of this and by his grace, you know, we've been forgiven and we start presuming upon the grace of God and what we end up doing instead of really submitting and surrendering and clinging to Him and, and living under His rule and reign, we start excusing. Rather than mourning over and being broken for and receiving the comfort of, we start excusing our own sin and just saying, this will never happen and we make this unrealistic and unattainable. And we put it way out in the future. When Jesus comes, this is what it will be like. Yes, it will be that way. But he's calling his disciples to this now. And he's calling us to this now. Let me give you the best example that just hit me as we are studying this. 
Jesus took his disciples up onto this mountain. And he was teaching them to observe all that he had commanded them. Be poor in spirit. Teaching them these things. And many theologians would say that when Jesus goes back to the mountain and gives the Great Commission, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to what? Observe all these things that I've commanded to you. Teaching them to obey. And I'll be with you always, even until the ends of the age. When he says this to his disciples, many theologians would say, and I agree, that he's on the same mountain in which he taught them the Beatitudes. Why is that significant? Because while he's looking at his disciples, what he's saying to them, I taught you to observe all the politics and the ethics of the kingdom, to be poor in spirit. I embodied it in front of you. I walked these things out. I walked with you. I gave you my spirit. I showed you how to live these things out. I, I walked with you, embodied it, teaching them to deserve. And now what is he saying to them? The same things I taught you under this mountain. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are these. Teach those who come after. Go and teach others. Go into all nations and teach them these same things. But don't just teach them these. Teach them to what? Observe these things. We cannot just teach this as like, hey, this is good stuff, but you'll never do it. We have to let people see that the weight of the kingdom puts us in a place where we are completely dependent upon him and completely empowered to do them. What would it look like? Is the van still back there? What would it look like? There you go. I don't know what you're waiting for. I said it like 10 minutes ago. <laughs> what would it look like if we lived this stuff out? That's, 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 the, uh, that's the wrestle. What would it look like in a world where it's so highly political and everybody's got a stance and everybody's got a position? What would it look like if the church wasn't seeking and pursuing to try to be in the limelight and have the loudest voice, but was consumed with embodying the kingdom of God so that people could see what it looks like to be poor and broken and meek and merciful. Peacemaking. Persecuted. These things, as we come to the table and we grab this cup, force me to understand why we take communion at the end of a service. Why? Because if we listened right, and if I did this right, and if we're hearing right, 
A message like this is going to force us into a place of starvation. Of hungering and thirsting for the very person and work of Jesus to come and be the King and Lord of our lives and empower us with all that we need based on His righteousness and sacrifice to be able to do any of this stuff. What would it look like to come to the table starving? Hungry and thirsty for Him, going, Lord, I I submit, I surrender to You. I need Your righteousness. Help me to live in this way. Show me what this looked like. Be with me as we walk these things out. And as we go through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, we've got to come with the same posture. I'm praying that today you'll come hungry to the table, but I'm also praying for us as a church because my prayer is that our world and our community, the people around us, would see the politic of the kingdom lived out in our lives. That it would see meek, humble, poor, broken, peacemaking, persecuted, broken people who are blessed and happy and fulfilled. Who are not fighting for power and privilege and popularity, but enjoying the very person of God, their King, living in this kingdom and praying, praying together, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What our longing, the desire is, is that the kingdom of God would be made manifest in this world. So the table's open. As you come, come starving. As you come, come repentant. As you come, Come asking, come searching, come asking, come receiving. Let's let's worship together. This podcast was recorded at Redemption Alhambra Village in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Redemption Alhambra Village, visit redemptionaz.com.